0: Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. The Biden era is here. Getting a handle on where the media stands is more important than ever. Today, I'm joined by Fox News host and author Dana Perino. This is episode 12. From media coverage of the Trump era, to the future of Fox News and Perina's new role as co-host of America's Newsroom, to tech censorship and anti-speech activism, we start with Perina's time as press secretary in the Bush White House. I want to start with the fact that we are now less than a month into a new administration, the Biden administration. Uh, a lot in the media was made at the end of last year about the uh, all-female communications team coming in, which actually is not exactly accurate, as we learned. But you were the uh, the, the second female White House press secretary um, mm-hmm. after D.D. Myers. And I want to ask you about that job first and, and your interaction with the press when you were in that role. Uh, what do you remember about that most? Sure. I
1: admired them from a PR standpoint of, Figuring out how to package a a story like that. But here's the thing about female communications teams in Washington right now. Uh, Yes, I was the second, Dee Dee Myers was the first, but then you've had Sarah Sanders and Kaylee McEnany and now um, Jen Psaki. And I would say that the glass ceiling that used to be over the uh, head of the White House briefing room has been well and firmly broken. And that's a great thing. Right. That's a great thing.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does seem whether a, yeah, press secretaries or communications directors, um, even, you know, particularly in the Trump administration, there were there were a lot of female ones, including Hope Hicks. Who was well, and person.
1: actually one thing I would say that um, government affords women some really great opportunities that you don't actually see as much in the private sector yet. Um, if you look at chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill or uh, people that were running campaigns and even look, you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who ran... Biden's campaign and Kellyanne Conway, who, want, who ran Trump's campaign, um, women do very well in politics from both sides of the aisle. They do really well at the, in the federal government. Like on the Hill, you'll find that women do, um, do these jobs now and nobody even thinks about the fact that there are women. So I, I see that as tremendous progress. Um, I had been the deputy press secretary for, I guess, two and a half years and had been at the Justice Department and the White House Council on Environmental Quality before I ever became the press secretary. So it's funny, when I think back to that time, I I look back very fondly at my experience at the White House. And of course there were days when, I remember one time I looked at myself in the side mirror after my husband picked me up from work and I saw my face and I thought, when did I get so hard? And so mean, not mean, like but I'm never really mean, but yeah. I was <laughs> toughened up. I was angry.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. I had I I I didn't like what I saw. And I and I, I internalized a lot of things. Um in fact I was just talking to Ben Shapiro not too long ago about you know, my approach to dealing with the media, um, which is my approach, and I think it was the right approach for President Bush. That's what um you know he wanted. Uh, Although, could I have pushed back more on the media? Sure. Um, But actually, I still feel like I did the job to the best of my ability at that time.
0: Yeah. And it does seem like, I mean, it, it was not that long ago. I mean, we're talking, you know, 12 to 15 years ago when you were there. and But yet it feels like a totally different era. And for, putting aside the, you know, the way that, say, the Obama administration was treated by just a, a, a GOP administration in 2004 to 2008 versus the last four years and what we saw. And I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think of the evolution there, the, the White House briefing room under Spicer, Sarah Sanders, Kayleigh McEnany, mm-hmm. that whole interaction. Mm-hmm. What did you make of it, I guess, from both sides of the equation there?
1: Yeah. One thing I think is pretty interesting, Steve, that I don't think people realize just because it's so um, ubiquitous in our life now is that in January of 2009, when I left the White House, I didn't even have a Twitter account. (laughs) Okay, like social media at the time, think how fast that has changed. And one of the things I used to say is that um, you just look at how technology changes over time and how leaders that figure it out really benefit. So FDR figures out that the radio is a great way to reach people. Right. And at first, people thought that was quite undignified. Like, what is he doing? So undignified. And But he figured it out. Um, John F. Kennedy, and then I would say Reagan, of course, really starts to use television. And think of the imagery. Um, and Michael Deaver, who worked on Ronald Reagan's uh, campaigns and the White House, like he could paint a picture of what they were trying to talk about think of tear down this wall speech Um, then what was the next evolution i would say that barack obama in his campaign in 2008 just wiped the floor with the republicans when it came to social media and utilizing new things i remember when they had cat owners or cat lovers for obama donate here five dollars and i thought that was so silly and then i realized oh Actually, that works. Yeah. And then Trump comes along and he figured it out. And he was able to utilize social media to his benefit. Now, the other thing that he liked to do, and I'm not saying it was wrong to do, but one of the things he he benefited from, he was frustrated with the media and he wasn't afraid to talk about it. He wasn't, you know, he's not going to be like me, super polite and try to push <laughs> right. back gently.
0: Slightly right? different uh, just, style.
1: Yeah. And it worked for him and it helped him build this stronger connection directly with his base. And I think that spilled into the briefing room on, on both sides. And I think about somebody like, um, you know, we, we, we talk about him a lot. I've talked about this on the five before. So I'll just say I, for somebody like Jim Acosta, you know, when the story becomes more about you than it is about getting the story, then you will get negative attention. But you also might get rewarded for wherever you, from wherever
0: you work. Oh, uh, from wherever you work, and I would also say from social media. I mean that you talk about the evolution with social media, the the you know the the feedback loop, uh, and really is you know this very closed loop when when you know this is this very curated feed that you've got, and you the, you know you're you don't it, it can feel like wow, look at these thousands of people who are telling me I did a great job, you know, yelling something as mm-hmm. the president, and then tweeting about it. It can feel really uh, I guess, fulfilling on some level, I would imagine, for Jim Acosta and for others like him. Um, that And that did not really exist. I mean, you, yeah, you could get maybe, a, uh, you know, an email or a, a letter sent to you. But that sort of like, you know, elevation to this hero status among a very odd and probably pretty small subset of people where politics is just like hobby. Uh, yeah. is, it's, it's, that's different. Do
1: you realize that they also just like tweet for each other? <laughs> right. And I used to say this in the briefing room. I would watch and a lot of those reporters, they would, they, you know, it's like, we're all competitive within your, um, sector, wherever you work, finance people, tech people, um, uh, politicians and reporters. And I realized like, oh, they're writing for each other. And now they tweet for each other and aren't they clever? But I would say that one thing we say on the five as well, is uh, never tweet, <laughs> but also that Twitter is a terrible, terrible place to try to measure your self worth. Yeah. And it's also a place where you would say things that you would never ever say to somebody's face. And I think that the bloom is off the rose or the beak is off the bird when it comes to Twitter.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does feel like something's changing. Although, you know, and and I also think there is this really like strange warping quality of it where there, yes, it, it does like, it changes how, you know, how something feels. It can feel like a, a very small thing can feel very large. Uh, it can mm-hmm. feel, there's amplification. But then it's also just so quick um, where you can fire something off and hit send. And then who knows what, you know, where that might travel. Um, and it does feel like... Right, that, you that's can a get little,
1: fired yeah, within right. an hour. We've seen and that. you're like, wait, I'm getting fired. Why am I getting fired?
0: Right, yeah, right, right. And it does seem like we've seen that also with like the way the media covered. Certainly, the Trump administration. I wonder if it'll come in in the Biden administration where there's like, what's the you know we talk about 24 hour news cycle? It's like what's the you know 30 minute news cycle that we've got here based on either a tweet or some you know evolution of a tweet or conversation that's happening that's become this like big story and then it's gone.
1: I see this true in, in corporate uh, public relations as well because. Even though I don't work in it, I am interested in it and I like to watch. And some of these companies are just too quick to respond to something where if they just waited four hours, it would be over.
0: Right. And they
1: get themselves involved in something partly because their uh, employees are pushing them to actually. Um, Yeah, I think that the fact, though, that it's changing so quickly and we don't really know. So, you know, Steve, I know we've talked about Facebook and Twitter. Young people are talking about TikTok. Yeah. They're not even talking about Snapchat anymore. They've moved on. So once again, we are behind.
0: (laughs) I I, I don't even have a TikTok. I need to get that going.
1: Well, I I won't because I don't want the Chinese to be looking at my
0: phone. (laughs) Got it. You're going to decide. You you want Silicon Valley looking at your phone or you want the Chinese looking at your phone? I guess there's different layers of uh, that. (laughs) Later, Trump versus the establishment, not just in politics, but the media too. But now working with Tony Snow and her work transitioning to the Obama era. You mentioned Jim Acosta, and, you know, he had a book about the most dangerous time to tell the truth in America, uh, which apparently was when he wrote his book and got his book deal. Um, but you actually uh, had a little bit of a dangerous incident as a as a press secretary. Uh, and I didn't realize this. I was doing some research. You, you were in the shoe throwing incident. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I was were in the only one who collateral had damage there. <laughs> tell me about that.
1: Yeah, it's a it's an amazing st- it, it, to look back every December. I look back and uh, President Bush and I will share a, a message um, of solidarity. If remember that day? Um, so we were in Iraq. It was uh, the final international trip of the Bush administration. And we, we could only be on the ground for, uh, let's just say, for a limited amount of time. Like, let's say it's 15 hours. because at, And then the Secret Service said, we got to get out by in, within 15 hours. So the last stop was a press conference with Prime Minister Maliki. And So we get there, we're sitting, I'm sitting next to Ed Gillespie, who was the communications director at the time. And we were sitting to the side and the boom mic for the press conference for the interpreter, who actually also happened to be our CIA guy (laughs) at the time. um, It was right next to us. And I had just said to Ed Gillespie, look at these reporters. This is so exciting. They never thought in their whole life that they'd ever get to work as a reporter, that they'd ever get to ask their leader, let alone the leader of the free world, a question while their city and their country is under occupation and, and, and we're at war. Right. And here we are doing this. And just as the press conference starts, the, the guy throws his shoes. Thank goodness President Bush had such great reflexes and Very ducked sad. twice. <laughs> and the Secret Service agent that was standing next to the CIA guy, he lunged forward. And Don White was his name. He's really tall. I think he was probably like 6'6". Six, six. And when he lunged forward, he hit the boom mic and it swung around and the steel arm of it hit me right under the eye. And it all happened so fast, but I, was, I had my hand over my eye. And Steve, to be, to be honest, what I really thought was because we were in a small room and there was so much equipment, I thought that the shoe throwing, again, this is a split second in my mind, I thought it was a distraction for a bomb. Wow. And I remember saying, here we go. Hmm. But of course, it wasn't. This right, yeah, guy thanks, decided thankfully. to throw his shoes. So the Secret Service and the Iraqi security forces tackle the guy, and I thought we'd be leaving. So like, I'm like grabbing my, I'm gathering my stuff, and I'm have my hand over my eye, and I'm crying a little bit, and I see the president. I'm like, he's not leaving. And Maliki wanted to end the press conference, and President Bush said, "No, <laughs> no two-bit terrorist is going to stop us from answering these questions. We stay, and we take your questions." And he points at one of the reporters and he said, let's start with you. And the reporter is so flustered because now the shoe throwers on the ground (laughs) kind of whimpering and crying. (laughs) And the president says again, do you have a question? Let's go. Mm. And he makes sure that these questions are going to be answered, which I love that moment and and his commitment to the idea of a free press. But then I needed to get out of the room because it hurt so bad, and I didn't know what was happening. I thought I actually it, it came close to breaking that little what is it, whatever that called, occipital, oh, really? bone, whatever. Yeah. And so this marine, I wish I could find him. He reached over with this gigantic hand. It looked like like the hand of hamburger helper. <laughs> reached over, grabbed me, and literally pulled me up out of my seat and over the chairs, and we're leaving the room to go to our doctors. And this guy says, law- no one's allowed to leave. And this was an Iraqi security guy. And, you know, a lot of them worked um, for the security forces, even though they might have been engineers or whatever. So I said, I need a doctor. And he said, oh, I am doctor. <laughs> I said, oh, my doctor? Anyway, about 10 minutes later, or about 30 minutes later, when the press conference ends, the president comes to find me. And one of my favorite pictures is us from behind. And he's got his arm around me. And he said... What happened? I saw you were crying, but I thought you were uh, crying because the guy threw a shoe at me. And I said, Oh, Mr. President, um, you know, I love you, but I grew up in Wyoming and I'm a little tougher than that. (laughs) So he didn't know that I got hit in the face. And I had a black eye, visible black eye for six weeks until the end of the administration.
0: Wow. Yeah, not a, well it's like guess, a metaphor. Yeah, like a battle scar for to end the administration. <laughs> um, let me ask you about another aspect of the administration, because you also uh, worked, I believe you were his deputy press secretary with Tony Snow. Uh, yep. And, and I'm curious, yep. you know, oh, now, gosh. Now, yep. now you're at Fox, uh, who, who uh, you know where Tony was as yes. well. Um, yes. Uh, I, I, what was it like working with him when you when you were there with him?
1: Tony Snow, oh my gosh. Well, of course, we, we speak of him um, with such reverence, um, just so anyone who's listening who might not have known Tony Snow, a giant of a reporter, an analyst, a writer. Oh, who could he write? Yeah. Um, and he uh, hosted Fox News Sunday. He had a Fox News radio show. He had um, colon cancer and unfortunately passed away in July of 2008. I loved working with him. Uh, of course, he was under cancer treatment during that time. And he's such a generous person. And also, he was so scavenged. He lost three blackberries within like four months, <laughs> and one of them he found in a winter boot, and it was August. And I'm um, how did the win- How did the blackberry get in the winter boot in August? And he and his wife they would ad- they adopted so many stray animals and would take care of them. They had three beautiful children, and he would eat so much in the morning because he had to try to keep his uh, weight up for the cancer treatment. And I remember briefing him early, early in the mornings. And he would have pancakes and he would stuff butter and bacon in between the stack of the pancakes and then smother it with syrup. And he would eat the entire thing before we went to the senior staff meeting. <laughs> wow. And, and after the briefings, after, you know, we would get him ready, um, he would do the briefing. And then it takes a lot out of you. And yeah. I just remember in that big chair, I'd walk by and I could see him closing his eyes. And so I would just shut the door and let him have a few minutes hmm. because he needed the rest. And when I was going to take over for him, he asked me, how are you doing? This is on his last day. And I said, well, not very good. And he said, why? And I said, well, how am I supposed to you know, fill your shoes? Yeah. I used to say, you know, he's he was like six five and I'm five feet tall. I wear a size five and a half shoe. I'm like, how am I supposed to fill your shoes? And I'll, I'll always be grateful for this. He made me stand up and he said, come over. And he put his hands on my shoulders, made me look him in the eye and said, you are better at this than you think you are. About two weeks later, I was rushing to get to the briefing and I didn't have time to take all my notes. I just had like one piece of paper. So I just went without notes and I was so nervous. And I realized at the end of that briefing, which had been my best to date, in my opinion, I was like, oh, that's what he meant. I don't have to be like him. Yeah. I can be myself. And what a generous thing he did to give me that confidence.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I wanna ask you one more one more thing about the about your time in the White House and that was you know, we, we've heard a lot about in uh, recent weeks uh, going back before January 20th and then since January 20th about transition. And, and and I guess I'm curious, obviously, there was not a traditional transition, at least in the in, in the more recent history sense yeah. uh, between Trump Say and, the least. and Biden. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, did you have much uh, of a transition there when you sort of handed things off to the Obama administration and to Robert yes. Gibbs? Yeah. And I think
1: that's something that uh, the, all of everyone that worked in the Bush administration was quite proud of. And even president Obama, when he did the transition to president Trump told his team, I want it to be as good as what the Bushes did for us. Hmm. Um, And one of the reasons that president Bush put this premium on making sure that uh, the transition was super professional is uh, the one from Clinton to Bush 43 was not, Oh, I am sure you've heard the story about uh, like the W's being torn off the keyboards and it's like some sort of, you know, all that nonsense. And, And they're also, there's just not enough time to get a new administration up to speed on everything that they need to do in order to help protect the country. That's what I always took away from it, is that you need, the the transition is always a very dangerous time for any country, but for our, let's just talk about our country. Because any time of transition, it's just, there's uncertainty. Who's in charge of what? You're not really sure, and what's going on. And our enemies would like to try to strike at that time. Right. And so making sure the transition was smooth. The other thing I, um, from, from my perspective, of course, I didn't have national security responsibilities. I had the responsibility to make sure that Robert Gibbs, the incoming press secretary and his team, had everything that they needed to be successful. And so we met with them on weekends and any time of day that they wanted uh, to make sure that, you know, part of the part, part of the thing about the White House press office Yes, there's the communications part, but there's also the logistics. Like, how? what time does the press need to gather so that you can get them to the right place in the East Room where they're going to be able to uh, be there for the event? There's a lot of logistics that happens. And so that part was very important to me as well. When President Bush invited Barack Obama, the president-elect, to the Oval Office and invited all the former living presidents to have lunch in that private dining room uh i uh, robert gibbs came with obama that day and we we're in the press office and i said wait the, the press is going in for the photo let's go in and watch so i took him in with me to the oval office and it was just such an awesome sight uh to see clinton 41 uh, yeah. carter obama and bush and i thought you know we show the world over and over again that you know we do this very well Sometimes we don't do as well as other
0: times, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, I, I do wonder. <laughs> we do it. We do it well. I wonder, looking back, like four years from now, if if Trump is back in that mix. I, I guess a lot depends on what happens over the next four years. But uh, it is it is interesting the the contrast there for sure. The rise of alternative, independent, and social media. What that means for the big conservative powerhouse Fox News. That is next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscription, no credit card, no trial, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. More with Dean in a minute, but first it's time for another edition of How Did This Get Published. I try to avoid opinion columns because I'm generally supportive of media outlets publishing a wide array of opinions, including bad ones. But a column published recently in The Washington Post by Paul Waldman was so egregiously absurd, so poorly argued, it's stunning there wasn't a single editor who stepped in to at least encourage Waldman to consider backing up the central thesis of it. The column took two seemingly disparate concepts and connected them into the idea that conservatives are having a, quote, hard time. Here's how the column was framed by The Washington Post Twitter account. Opinion. Transgender ban lifted. Tubman on the $20 bill. It's a hard time for conservatives. Why are conservatives having a hard time with the transgender ban being lifted and Harriet Tubman getting put on the $20 bill? Well, Waldman writes, many conservatives will find the new Tubman bill distressing, even if they could barely tell you the first thing about Jackson. Does that make them racist? The real answer is, it doesn't matter. What's in individual hearts is not really important. Huh. So, who are these conservatives who are mad about Tubman getting put on the $20 bill? Well, Waldman quotes... No one. Not even a dude on Twitter with four followers. Instead, it's just his general feeling, apparently. Harry Tubman, that famous gun-owning general badass. Waldman tries to argue the Trump administration held up the move to put Tubman on the $20 bill, but as Ed Morrissey at Hot Air pointed out, the Washington Post itself essentially debunked the thesis of Waldman's column in 2019. But Waldman now claims conservatives are all very unhappy over these two developments. Are there some conservatives who are unhappy about transgender troops and Tubman on the 20? I mean... Sure. But perhaps it's worthwhile for Waldman to have, you know, talk to a single one. The Washington Post. How did this get published? Now, back to Dana Perino. Let me fast forward, though, to your time at Fox. You're currently uh, one of one of your many roles as a co-host of the revamped America's Newsroom. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about Fox and, and sort of a, a few different areas, because it does feel like 2021, we're in a little bit of a precarious media environment. Uh, so, so the first is, I guess, kind of what we talked about, which is social media um, and new media. And I know you're active in social and in podcasts. What do you think of the rise of kind of alternative media, independent media versus legacy media outlets like Fox News and and the impact and influence that each have right now?
1: You know, we started, one of the things we started talking about was how different presidents had utilized new technologies as they came along and adapted and, and owned it. And I would say, you know, I've been here since April 2009. I've had lots of different roles, um, but I've always been on the five since uh, 2011. Right. And one of the things I've seen this company do is adapt very well in terms of cross, uh, utilizing a lot of content on all the different platforms. So, uh, dot com, a podcast, uh, now Fox nation, I'll, you know, I'll give you an example, Bill Hemmer and I today, after we finished America's newsroom, we spent a little bit of time helping prepare for a documentary that Fox nation is doing about Ronald Reagan. Um, and I've also seen the benefit of, for me, I'm a podcast enthusiast. I love it. I love listening to many podcasts, um, not just here at Fox news, though there are many good ones. Um, I do think a little bit about people like my niece and younger people who don't have cable.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: right? They don't have a cable bill. And I'm, I'm interested in that issue. I have to trust that everybody else is thinking about it and figuring it out because I certainly don't have time or the expertise to think about it. But, um, I do think that Fox has been well positioned to really do well, especially if you think about FoxNews.com and the way that those numbers have increased in the last, uh, not even eighteen months or two years. I don't know the exact numbers, but the the increase in terms of impressions and reach is very good.
0: Yeah. But yeah. I also
1: feel like, yeah. what else is happening? There must be more. We have to do more.
0: Well, that's the thing. And I, I, it is interesting. I, I, you know, I'm sort of an old millennial. I'm 36 now. And I'm, you know, I don't know if I could ever live without a, a, my cable box in a traditional TV sense. But I, I, I've interviewed, I, I interviewed an intern. Uh, this was, I think, last year. And I, I, I was asking about what news sources she likes. And she mentioned the New York Times. And I said, oh, OK. And then she said, you know, like The Daily, And that's what she considered the New York Times Uh, was the daily, which, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the New York Times doesn't mind, but it's a little bit odd that a newspaper is now known to this generation, uh, you know, at least this person, um, as a podcast, you know, which is totally. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's maybe oh. where it's going. I mean, it's it, but that, but to your point, you know, Fox has their hand in, you know, with Fox Nation and streaming and there's all the different outlets there that, you know, what Fox is is sort of evolving for a different generation.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I did on the Daily Briefing uh, show, uh, now that show is no more because now I'm on America's Newsroom. But I was very proud of how we had decided to really focus on Instagram and the Insta story because I read this article about how young people like to get their news on Instagram. And I thought, how in the world do you get news on Instagram? I don't know how that (laughs) works. But I was willing to try. And I said, I want to do this. And I looked at a few other um, media companies like ABC News I said, how do they do it? Let me look. And then over time, we really ramped it up and it was fantastic. And we grew our... um, uh, followers. And I intend to try to do that with America's Newsroom as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, I mean,
1: I don't know what they're getting out of it in terms of... <laughs> I mean, I hope that they're getting something out of it. Oh, sure. They must be, because they were looking at it all the time. And we try to make the content compelling um, and point to other interviews.
0: It's a, Yeah, no, I, I think it makes sense. I, I, I think that that's, that's a good... That's a good well. Well, you know, speaking of of social media and 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 that, uh, I do think there's an out, offshoot that's actually pretty troubling to me, and I think that there's this rise of what I'm calling sort of anti speech activism among the media, and it's it, this always sort of existed. I mean, you had these outlets that were like completely not journalism, places like you know Media Matters, which would just love to see Fox News get shut down, but it was ultimately like a political arm. Now you're seeing that sentiment rise to. Fairly smart people that are in the media that you would think would be more embracing of free speech. Um,
1: yeah, what, like what Margaret you, Sullivan of the Washington Post. Yeah,
0: who wasn't you know a public editor at the New York Times uh, at one point. So, what do you think is is maybe behind this, and do you think that this is this is a real uh, turning point in the media?
1: Do you feel like it's a turning point, but I feel like it will evaporate. I don't know when. I, I don't think it has lasting power because. Our institutions, uh, our product, and our, uh, I was going to call them customers, and I guess they are, but yeah. viewers yeah. Um, and listeners, if it's radio or um, even on social media, um, they want the content. And actually, my mom, uh, she's now retired, but for years she worked in um, hospice and nursing homes in Colorado and <laughs> in Denver in particular. And the number one request from people, aside from, you know, will, you, will my mother be safe here, was, do you have Fox News here? Hmm. And if they didn't have Fox News, then, well, my mom's not going to want to be here. Um, so I think that the, there's a demand. Um, what's interesting is you don't see anybody from here suggesting, well, we think then that the John Doe Post should be eliminated. No. That it doesn't it's it's not a two-way street that's why I think it will be um, it, I think it will fizzle out I hope it does it's a folly it's absurd and it's not reciprocated like nobody here is suggesting that um so I would hope that cooler heads would prevail but also I know that the law will prevail too
0: right right yeah no i I, I look at like you know the social media you know, bans and suspensions, and it's always pretty hypocritically applied to who who is uh, getting "quote unquote" canceled there. But it, it does seem like those who are, you know, again, I'm I'm sort of generalizing, but those generally on the right who may be more victims of it are not, you know, are not supportive of necessarily happening to the left or to media outlets that are that are on the left either.
1: And I will tell you that on the five, we've been talking about cancel culture for a long time, and. I cannot think of a time when we suggested anyone should be canceled. And in fact, there's been times when we have defended somebody and then two weeks later, they come after us. <laughs> <laughs> right. But nice. it doesn't mean that we would stop. I just, I feel uh, a strong principle. Um, look, look I'm, a, I'm a free speech enthusiast. And I think our founding fathers were so brilliant. And even at such a young age, look, the First Amendment is first for a reason. Yeah. And we, and we have to protect it.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, let, all right. Let me ask you the third point here related to Fox, because there there was a lot of, you know, I would say post-election drama that was maybe a little bit of a media creation, maybe a little bit real. Um, but it does seem like, you know, in politics now, there is a split in the GOP. There's a, sort of the Trump wing, and then there's more the establishment wing, and there's probably two or three other wings sure. that I'm uh, thinking about. But not just in politics, but also the media. And, and I, I wonder, you know, a couple things, but, but let's start with what do you think Trump does now without a Twitter account? And, uh, and, you know, in, in now kind of wading his way into a landscape in the media that we know he loves, love the media. Um, how does he bring himself back?
1: Boy, it'll be fascinating to see. And I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in this Facebook Supreme court uh, where they are going to decide in the next few months, they said it was going to take till April. Um, for this Supreme court of Facebook to make a decision on whether his account could be restored. You know, it's possible that m- there might be something new out there um, for him, like a new platform. that's still social media. Uh, he will have a platform. He has a lot of supporters and a lot of fans, but uh, you, know, as soon as you're not on the stage every day and you don't have a way to communicate as easily, you have to get creative and you have to decide what and how you're going to do it. And, and social media doesn't cost a lot. Now you can spend a lot on Facebook ads and things, but uh, he won't, he won't have to do that. I and, and when it comes to the party, I've been thinking about this, Steve. In the 1980s, a lot of um, I would say ethnic Catholics became Reagan supporters, hmm. and the party was able to absorb them. Okay, and then in 1992, the Perot voters, they were strong, right, and a lot of people could say, well, that's how the Republicans ended up losing that reelection." But still, the Republican Party said, this is a new angle. These are new people. Can we absorb these people as well? And so then you get this concept of the big tent. I'm really interested in whether this big tent idea can still continue. I, asked, I almost ask every guest a version of that question. And Senator Rob Portman, who just announced his retirement, he said, Oh, of course. It's easy. I don't know if it's that easy. No. But I know that you the Democrats are actually quite unified. It's very interesting. Think about Bernie Sanders. He does not like Joe Biden's politics or policies. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he saw that Joe Biden was going to win, he got in line and he told his left wing to stand down. And now guess what? He's the Senate budget chairman. So they they tolerate each other. I don't know how long that will last either. It could be that Joe Biden finds that the that there a handful of Democrats are going to be as obstructionist in his mind as the Republicans are going to be. But we'll have to see. It's it's an interesting time to live through.
0: Yeah, no, it is, and, and I, uh, I I think you know that the, there is obviously this putting Trump aside. There's there's this what you're describing, these, these tensions in both parties and, and how each party adjusts to it. And then you've also got the outside Trump himself. Well, you talk about big tent. I mean, it does seem like, you know, you think about Fox has, has been the most powerful, probably the most powerful media outlet, uh, you know, for decades. Um, and, but certainly not even close to and an, you know, anyone, you know, close to Fox in, when it comes to right leaning media outlets. And, uh, And in a lot of ways, it feels like there's like you talk about the big tent, a little bit of a big tent at Fox now as well in terms of the, you know, getting all the voices into one place.
1: Well, and that's and that's the great thing about being here, right, because um, you really do have this rich diversity of ideas and opinions. And I would say experiences It's one of the things I really like about um, on the day of the Capitol riot on January 6th. I had just, it, it, it kind of started during like the 1.30 p.m. half hour, but then it really got going at two o'clock. So I was anchoring that coverage because that was, would have been the daily briefing show. And on the phone, or not just on the phone, but we had um, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum and Andy McCarthy jumped in. Um, we had Chris Wallace. Uh, we had our reporters on the ground. who were doing excellent work. I remember finishing that hour and saying, wow, we have some really great people here. The reporters are so impressive, I think. And they've got so much on the ground experience. I think of um, Griff Jenkins uh, and uh, Mike Tobin, who were there that day, Chad Pergram. And these are people that I would turn to in a second. And whatever they would tell me, I would feel comfortable taking straight to air. Or that's like when I was in the briefing room, whatever they like, if If I didn't trust somebody, I couldn't go to the podium and and say that. You know, if I ever felt like I had to double check what somebody told me, then that wasn't good. Um, We had a really tight-knit situation there. I I just want to mention one other thing in terms of this um, uh, big tent idea or or what's going to work in the future for the Republican Party. People don't realize one thing that I think is really important. In 2020, 24,500 registered Republican voters voted in Georgia, in the Georgia primary election in June 2020. They did not vote that many. They did not vote in the general election. So 24,500 Republicans, registered Republicans, voted in June. They did not show up on November 3rd to vote for Republicans on that day. That, to me, is a big issue, because if your people aren't turning out to vote, look how close that election was in Georgia. That would have made all the difference. There never would have been a question of who won if they had turned out and voted as well. So there are there are problems that go beyond just um, establishment versus populist. There is a issue of turnout. And if turnout is the thing that drives elections, that's where the Democrats, they have an edge right now right they really do
0: the fourth watch lightning round six questions in 60 seconds is coming up but first what prompted dana to write her new book of career advice for women which is out next month let me end with this before we get to our our lightning round uh i was trying to think of a good way in here So i was thinking maybe this is like the opposite of the uh, cesspool that is Twitter, but your new book coming out next month uh, is called Everything Will Be (laughs) Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women from a Former Young Woman, Uh, and I guess also sort of came out of uh, one of your uh, previous books, and the good news is, and, you know, really, like I said, you know, you don't get a lot of the positivity in the media these days. Um, Tell me about the new book. What, what, What made you want to put this out there?
1: So when I left the White House, because I was the first Republican woman to be press secretary, and I had all these great experiences in Washington, D.C., and I would be asked when I left the White House for so many uh, meetings or coffees or any, anything that, they, that young women could get for mentoring advice. How could they do this? What should they do? Should they go to law school? Should they go to, should they go to business school? How can I go from being someone's assistant to being taken seriously? What if I don't want to do press and I want to go into legislation? Like, what should I do? So when I wrote, and the good news is, lessons and advice from the bright side, which is really captured how I live. And and the good news is, uh, it was a little play on words that when I was first on Capitol Hill, my boss taught me that when you go in to brief the congressman or then the president, Hmm. You usually you're never going in there to say, hey, everything went so well today. And the coverage in The New York Times tomorrow is going to be amazing. You're going to love it. You're going in there with problems, she said. But if you you always want to leave on a high note. So always have something in your back pocket where you can say. And the good news is. Nice. So in that chat, in that book, I had chapter chapter five, where I put all of my mentoring advice into one place. And I started a group called Minute Mentoring, which is like speed dating, but mentoring for young women. One of the things i wrote about is the quarter life crisis which a lot of women go through around age 25 where they're not sure if they chose the right career path they haven't found a, the life partner that they were expecting um maybe they think they went to you know it, or they're living in the wrong city everything just feels like it's not going the way they thought it would and many young women think that they're the only ones who feel that way and the truth is every one, young woman i know feels this way around that age My concern had been that that quarter-life crisis was following them into their 30s and beyond. So I kept getting questions for more advice and more advice. So again, I was like, I want to put everything in one place and not just the day-to-day career advice, of which there is a lot, as in like, when to use exclamation points and not. I even include things like the five-minute pickup for your desk. But I wanted to take it a little bit deeper and say, how do you want to live? And how can you turn all of this anxiety that you're feeling into fuel that will take you to the next step in your career? How can you become that person in the office that everyone wants to turn to because you are resilient and you are a leader? When can you step up and how can you do this with that gift that God has given all of us, which is the ability to find serenity? So I wrote this book during the pandemic in an election year. I don't know really what I was thinking because <laughs> that was a lot of work. Yeah but I'm so proud of how this book turned out. I'm, I'm very, very excited for young women to read it.
0: That's great. That's great. And this is coming out in March. Uh, and uh, yeah, everything will be okay. We'll, uh, everything article. will be okay. I love it. I love it. Great sentiment <laughs> for 2021 in this uh, <laughs> pandemic year. Uh, all right, Dana, let, before we end, let's do a, a quick uh, six questions in 60 seconds. Where were you born?
1: Evanston, Wyoming.
0: You're the co-host of America's Newsroom. What's one benefit and one cost of that role?
1: Oh, the benefit! I feel so intellectually stimulated with this show. I'm so excited every morning, like shot out of a cannon. And that time time of day actually works very well for me. The tough thing is trying to figure out how to also do the five. Right, it's a long day.
0: That's right. And I'm
1: I'm struggling a bit. But if everybody could say a prayer and help me, (laughs) I'd appreciate it. (laughs)
0: Nice. Uh, We've talked about probably some of these, but who is someone in particular who's been a mentor for you?
1: Well, of course, Tony Snow. I, I have to say Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, who um, I first met when I got here in 2009, and she has helped me so much with the career transition. And it's been a joy to watch her uh, become this, you know, transform into the leader that she is today. And I admire her. And I actually, there's a few things that she has taught me that I include in the new book, including about you know, life, work-life balance Um, and how to how to best manage that. So I would say Suzanne, but there are many others, but let's put her at the top of the list.
0: Nice. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people?
1: Oh, my gosh, so many. I like everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would tell you, um, this might not be a surprise, but i would tell you, I am. uh, I am a big fan of Jonathan Carl of ABC News. Okay. He spent a lot of, you know, he spent a lot of his youth um, in the part of the world where I grew up. Uh, he was there in a Hill City, South Dakota, which is not too far from my grandparents' ranch. And I, I like his sensibility and his style. And his book on Trump was very good. And remember, President Trump told him, wow, I'm surprised your book was so good.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, he had, a, he had an interesting passage about Acosta in there, actually, as I remember. I, uh, yep. Who's one person in the media you think really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention?
1: Ooh, Peter Ducey. Peter Ducey. Uh, watch like, this kid.
0: I think this is going to be a big watch year for him. him. Yeah.
1: And also, you know what? He and Biden have a little bit of a fun relationship and it's a, it's mutually beneficial and adversarial at the same time, but it's not mean. And I think he's going to do great things in the briefing. Besides he's like six, six, who could possibly sit behind him in the briefing? He'll always get his question asked because he's the first person you see. Nice.
0: All uh, right, last one. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media?
1: We'll have a new Supreme Court justice.
0: Hmm. All right.
1: Because I think that um, the Biden people will be worried that they're going to lose the majority in 2022. And they will not want to make. They will not want to miss this opportunity to try to get a new Supreme Court justice named to the court. And so I expect a resignation. From Breyer.
0: All right. I'll check back in a year. Dana Perino, thank you so much. That was great. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Dana Perino. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. You can subscribe at fourthwatch.media. It's free. Comes out three times a week. Join me. Let's build a better media together and download this podcast. Like, follow, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. This is produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.